Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. We find ourselves back in Romans. I had a wonderful time last week in California at the Shepherds Conference. Thank you for just the grace to... For, to be able to go to that, and if you missed Robert's message last week out of Luke chapter 13, which I think was just a timely word in light of the tornadoes that struck our valley, uh, I encourage you to listen to that wise, sensitive, clear, gospel-saturated message from Robert. This morning we find ourselves back in Romans chapter 13, a journey we started in January of 2017, uh, and we are... F- are in this passage of Scripture, which is one of the more well-known in Romans. It's a, a passage about how the Christian should interact with governing authorities. And remember the flow of Romans, that chapters 1 through 11 have been Paul's most thorough explanation of the good news of the gospel, how unrighteous sinners can be reconciled to a holy God because We are unrighteous, there's nothing good in us, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God, so how will God solve that dilemma? And that's what he lays out for us in Romans 1-11, through that through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, whom he puts forward as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, a propitiation is the biblical word, to bear, to extinguish, to consume, to satisfy the wrath of God the Father, and turn that wrath into favor for those who by faith, awakened by the Holy Spirit, will believe and trust in Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And oh, by the way, that gospel's not just our earthly salvation. It is the guarantee of glorification that will surely await all of us. In other words, what God begins, He finishes. He brings all of His children all the way home. And then in Chapters 12 through the rest of the book, he spends time then flushing out that gospel. How are we to live out this gospel in this world? And in chapter 12, we look at how we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, as acceptable to God, and how we're to relate to one another and to a world around us. And chapter 13, at least the first seven verses, are an explanation of how we, as citizens of this kingdom, but ultimately citizens of the kingdom to come, which is God's, should live in this kind of in-between time where we are saved, we are God's, but we are not yet fully home. And so how do we live in this this tension of, of life in this kingdom as we await for God's kingdom? So let me read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. This is what Paul says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. This is uh, an important text and something that is uh, particularly, I think, This is a blind spot, a vulnerability of many American Christians about how we are to interact with government. So we need God's help. Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you for your word. As we consider what it says to us as citizens of this earthly kingdom, Lord, give us a balance. Give us eyes to see what your servant Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is is writing here, how we are to live in a way that has a loose hold on this world, but in a way where we point the world to the coming King Jesus. Lord, help us to be good citizens. Help us to glorify you in our earthly lives. And help us to understand this text better. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who, who, Lord, all of us have certainly shortcomings and blind spots in this area. Help us to, to view the world more clearly and more compassionately through the lens of the gospel. Help us to view other believers with whom we may disagree with in these matters more graciously. And help us to savor Christ more. Help us to love Jesus more as a result of our time together. And for my friends that are in this room who do not yet know Jesus, Lord, would you make them citizens of your kingdom today by giving them a new heart, by opening, awakening their eyes to Jesus so that they can trust in the one true King. Lord, I pray that you do all of this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. One thing I love about the Bible is its sufficiency. It gives us all that we need for life and godliness. In fact, that's what it says. Essentially, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter is writing and he's saying that God's divine power, and I think included in that is his written revelation, gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And through his very great and precious promises, we have all that we need. And then Paul writes to a young pastor in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He speaks about how the scriptures are breathed out by God. God has caused the Bible writers of these 66 books to write down exactly what he intends to be written down. They are breathed out by God. Therefore, they are without error and they are authoritative. 
That's, they're able to make us, as Paul says to Timothy, wise for salvation. And they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the person of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible's sufficient. But, and this is something that sometimes we, we misunderstand, is that the Bible doesn't speak with specific, minute detail as a kind of answer book in a kind of rote sort of way to every situation in life. The Bible gives us general principles often, gospel-centered principles, points us to live as Christ in a variety of unique contexts and cultures because there are different contexts and cultures all across the history of civilization and the history of the world whereby the gospel and the truth of the Bible applies to it all. And as God has taken his Holy Spirit and written his word and he's put his Holy Spirit in his people, he informs them, he guides them into all truth so that they might be able to apply this sufficient word to all of life. And this portion of scripture is, is a passage that is an application, it's a kind of general principle whereby the Christian can apply to all of life, especially how we ter- are to interact towards our government. I don't know if you knew this or not, but that's um, an often controversial subject in our culture. Have you noticed that? And so we need God's wisdom, we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We need humility, and we need to walk into this text as we work through it, keeping in mind that we are just a tiny little subset of God's people and God's kingdom in our culture in America today. We have a unique and unusual relationship with government in our country, and we should be aware of that, that because of that, we may not see things that other Christians may see, and how this text may hit us may be different than our brothers and sisters in other countries. In one sense, it's a kind of strange paradox that that exists in the American psyche. In one sense, we have this revolution spirit. You know, think 1776, you know, Boston Tea Party. But in another sense, we just love powerful government. We just love to be awesome. And so we, we come to this text, I think, oftentimes kind of, kind of with competing unbiblical tendencies. So I have five truths that I want to unfold through this text, and uh, let's, let's hope that God will, will help us understand it better as a result. Truth number one that we see in this text as we work back through it is that we should obey government because God has established it for our good. We should obey government because God has established it for our good. Look again at verse 1 of our text. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I think verse 1 is exhaustive and comprehensive in what it is saying about human government. When he says there that those that exist, I think, means every government in the history of mankind has been, has been established, has been given its validity, even if, and this is important for us to understand, even if it is a fallen pagan government. In fact, you realize um, 
do you realize that governments cannot be Christian? Only people can be Christian. Governments can't get saved. So America is not and never has been a Christian nation. It may have been a nation that by and large or maybe more or less compared to other governments in the past has been, has been founded on maybe Judeo ethic, Judeo-Christian ethics or a kind of biblical morality. Yes, that may be true to varying degrees, but a, a government can't be Christian. People are Christian. God saves people and brings them into his heavenly kingdom. Governments are fallen. And the government that Paul is writing this about in the context of first century Rome was definitely a fallen government. It was a wicked government. In fact, just a few years at this time when Paul wrote this letter, likely Nero was the emperor of Rome. But at this time, he was not nearly as hostile, if at all hostile to Christians, like he would be in the decades to come. But shortly after Paul wrote this letter, Nero begins to to persecute Christians and to take Christians off to their death into the Colosseum and starts to burn Christians as streetlights in the lamps in the streets of Rome. It's not like the Holy Spirit didn't know that was coming when he inspired Paul to write this. We should realize that God has established government. Good government, bad government, and every government in between. This does not mean, and we've spoken about this a lot, that God is ever culpable for the wickedness of a government that he has allowed to come into power. There are numerous biblical examples of how God will even use wicked governments that we'll look at in a bit for his purposes. And in these situations, we must trust especially what Paul has told us before in Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good for those that love God. Ephesians 1, verse 11, he, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, about how the secret things belong to God. And we don't always understand his purposes in and of this moment. God has purposes in everything. He has established all governing authorities. He's not culpable for the evil that fallen governments perpetrate. But he's established them. And he has established it in some way which is often hidden to us in this age for our good. Which then leads us to verse 2. It says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now remember, he's speaking to Christians who are facing at least some social persecution. And certainly in the coming years, uh, persecution of life. So because God has established government, I think is what Paul is saying in verse 2, to resist it is sinful and will be punished. This brings up a very important question then. Are there exceptions to this? Yes. This is not all that the Bible has to say about how we are to interact with the government or the state. What Paul is doing here in verse 2, in verse 1 and 2 of Romans 13, is issuing a kind of general principle that will stand the test of time for all Christians. Generally, government is generally better than anarchy. And generally, Christians should submit to government. But are there times 
when there are exceptions. Yes, in fact, the Bible is is full of those exceptions. So this leads us to the second truth that I, I want us to see. That we, as believers in Jesus, as Christians, should disobey government if obeying the government means disobeying God. We should disobey government if obeying it means disobeying God. What are some biblical examples? We won't take the time to read it, but look at Exodus chapter 1, where the Hebrew midwives were commanded by Pharaoh to kill all of the young Hebrew children. And Moses' mother righteously disobeys that edict from Pharaoh. And you know the story of how Moses is picked up by uh, the the Pharaoh's daughter in the, the, the river we see in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6 where Daniel and his friends disobey the edict of the emperor Nebuchadnezzar and Darius to bow down and worship him. And they say, no, we're not going to do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to do it. And as a result, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And they go into that furnace saying that even if God does not rescue us from this, we will not bow down. Daniel does not, he refuses to obey the emperor, and he is thrown into the lion's den. Those are clearly examples of where disobeying God, disobeying the government, is just and right. And then we see it in the New Testament as well. Look at Acts chapter 4. Let's let's read a little bit out of Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Acts 4, verse... 18. So the apostles are preaching the gospel. Stuff's happening. People are getting healed. People are believing in Jesus. And the local Jewish government at the time is getting anxious and wanting to crack down on them. And the Roman government is going along with what the local Jewish authorities are wanting because they're just wanting to quell rebellion and they they don't want civil unrest. And in verse 18 of Acts chapter 4, it says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Look again at verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, regardless of what you say. And then skip over to Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 17. We again see a similar scene. The apostles are preaching the gospel. Signs and wonders are being done. By the way, in the beginning of chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira drop dead for lying to the apostles. <laughs> Uh, that'll teach them. God is doing miraculous things to advance the gospel. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up, verse 17 of Acts 5, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during, so that's governing authorities, but during the night, kind of a mix of governing and religious authorities, but during the night, An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. 
Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when, verse 27, they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So clearly you see this mix of religious and civil authority in Jerusalem wanting to squash the preaching of the gospel and these Early apostles in Acts, like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and like the Hebrew midwives, disobeyed the government that in some way, even though fallen, had been instituted by God because it meant to disobey God. Now, friends, this is where it gets difficult to think about examples in our situation, in our setting. What are reasons why there might be exceptions that we should disobey the fallen government that is over us? I think there are some areas of life that are clear, where clearly Christians should disobey civil government if the government is causing us to disobey God. Those issues would be in issues of life, issues of taking the life of the unborn. If there was ever to be an edict where, or a rule or a law passed by Congress that says that a Christian doctor would have to perform an abortion, I think that it would be incumbent on the Christian doctor to disobey and not take life. Think about situations of worship. And this is where we, again, need to recognize that we have brothers and sisters around the world who, who have to face these very things. If the government were to say that we had to worship in a particular way or that we had to believe particular things, or that we couldn't worship at all. We should disobey government. Because to obey government would mean that we would be disobeying God. I think of Chinese brothers and sisters who are meeting in house churches, often underground, in the threat of persecution. And they are disobeying their government, but yet they are obeying God. I think about issues of the image of God. In all people, if there's any government policy that persecutes or in some way uh, denigrates a particular ethnicity, then of course that is wicked and we should disobey any government law that says that we are to treat people of other ethnicities less than ourselves. What's not as clear, friends... And this is where we need biblical wisdom. And this is where I think generally 
the vast majority of the time, God will call Christians to submit to things that they at times may vehemently disagree with. So here I go. Situations surrounding cultural, social, political issues like health care and how involved the government should be in funding that or not funding that at all. Situations regarding cultural things like or political or governmental programs like welfare and how much the government should be involved in that. Situations like whether or not the government should build a border wall on the southern border. Those are all situations that we need to recognize Christians, Bible-believing... Now, right now, I want you to exhale. I'm not going to give you what I think about any of those issues. <laughs> if you want to come speak to me personally, I'll be... I got opinions. But this pulpit's not the place for opinions. It's where we want to be clear about the Word of God and how it applies to all of life. What I'm saying is, is that do you see in some of these issues that don't, there's not a direct line between them and, say, the preservation of life that God has created, or the image of God in a person, or the freedom of worship. We can see that there may be competing reasons why Christians may be on opposite sides of these issues. And we must proceed with grace and humility. How, how much should a government subsidize welfare or health care? I, I think Christians can be on varying levels of that. What, what about... What about a, 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 what, should, we, should we lean more heavily on security or should we lean more heavily on, on welcoming sojourners? Again, those are things that Christians may be on varying spectrums of. And we may, in fact, be called as Christians to, don't hear me say this, don't hear me say that Christians should be detached from these issues in any way. Christians may be called to advocate or even run for political office or campaign and lobby for things that they think are for the good of the city, for the good of the country, for the good of the government that they are a part of. That is a good and righteous thing. But there's a balance there for Christians that we're going to look at in just a moment that we need to be careful about as we are active politically in these areas that may be gray, where Christians can be on opposite sides, where there's no clear instructions, where we need to walk slowly and wisely and graciously. We need to be careful not to make an idol out of our political stances. And that at times, let's just admit it, friends, that can be difficult, can it not? And, and social media has discipled us to make enemies out of anybody that disagrees with us. And that's terrible for the culture of the church if we give into it, isn't it? Amen. So we should disobey government if obeying it means disobeying God. Let's keep going. Verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Again, this is general. I realize that there are Christians around the world who have had very difficult relationships with ruling authorities, with police, with military. But generally, Paul is saying rulers in most situations are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then 
do what is good. In other words, be a law-abiding citizen, and you will receive his approval. For he is, he's speaking singularly now of the government as a whole, for he is God's servant. And that word servant is interesting. It's the same word that in other parts of the New Testament is used for deacon, like a deacon of the church. Deacons in the church serve. They serve the church. They care for God's people. And here, Paul is saying that whether or not he realizes, in fact, in the vast majority of cases, he doesn't realize it, the government, the governor, the president, the the whoever, the king, is God's deacon, is God's servant being used for, in some way, the good of his people. And that includes even wicked governors. God will use wicked rulers at times to wean God's people from their death grip on this life. He's God's servant, an avenger who carries out, again, this is a general principle, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Remember what we looked at in Romans 12. He says, don't don't seek to, to, to bring wrath in specific situations, but leave the wrath to God. And I think there's a kind of dual application of this. God's wrath on the wrongdoer is exercised in one temporary sense in civil justice on people who get put in prison for crimes, or even if there's capital punishment. I think that's what's implicit here, is even if the the, the state has the authority to bear the sword in a situation where somebody has so transgressed civil law that leave that temporary execution of justice to God and his deacon, which is the government. So if we are robbed, we can't be vigilantes and bring justice ourselves we then file a police report and leave it to the government to do that. But we know that ultimately, even this temporary civil justice is a kind of shadow of the true justice that will come because we will all stand before God someday. And at that moment, full and final justice will be had. For those that are in Christ, every wrong thing that we've done will be swallowed up in victory. In fact, already is. Because Jesus has borne the wrath of God for you. Friends, that's the gospel. Do you realize that we are spiritual criminals by our nature? And Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God for us. But if you're not in Christ, there's a much greater wrath than a civil penal code that is coming your way. There is the wrath of God for rebellion, not against a political party, or an earthly kingdom, but against God most high. Paul is saying in verse 4 that even earthly temporary civil justice, even in its incomplete form, is a kind of foreshadowing of the justice that comes in the gospel. In verse 5 he says, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And that's a Really important phrase there, that for the sake of conscience. And I think these next couple truths that we're going to look at are really unpack that. For the sake of how we live in alignment with God's will. For the sake of conscience, we must be in subjection to imperfect governments. Verse 6 and 7, 
This is so appropriate that it's March that we're reading this, this passage and April 15th is coming. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So for the sake of conscience, for the sake of doing and living in this world in a way that we know honors God, I think is what Paul is saying there at the end of verse 5. I think that leads us to these next few truths. So the third truth that we see in this text is that we, as believers in Jesus, should not be cynical about government. We should not be cynical about government. Now, we can certainly be critical of government, but we should certainly never be cynical about government. And I think this is a this is an Achilles heel of, of much of American Christianity. When we are cynical about the government, whether it is a government that we agree with or not agree with, or that we voted for or not voted for, when we, and you understand what I mean by cynicism versus criticism. It's not to say that we can't critique unrighteous aspects of our government, but when we are overly cynical and overly negative, about the government, I believe we undermine the hope and the beauty of the gospel to an onlooking world because what we ultimately, I think, are communicating in that cynicism is that we made government an idol and our idol is being smashed and now our hope is lost with that smashed idol. Does that make sense? So there's a fine line here. Unwittingly, my concern is not that we don't critique our government or campaign against certain things that our government at any particular time may be doing, but that we don't communicate to the onlooking world that our hope is in some temporary legislation. Because that will pass away and it will be gone. Again, I repeat, this does not mean that we don't work for the good and at times even against the policies of any particular government or administration but we should not be cynical. We should be respectful of those that God has put in authority over us. And I think, I think uh, this includes just stupid little things that Christians sometimes share on Facebook. Dumb little memes. They're just unbecoming of believers. So let's stop it. And why do we not need to be cynical? Because we can trust that God is in control and has purposes that we cannot see now. Consider this, this scene in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 27. I love this. I love to consider God's dealings with Israel and how that should encourage us. Israel has been disobedient to God. He's been warning them that if they continue in their disobedience, he's going to raise up a pagan king who is going to come take them into captivity because of their disobedience to him. And in fact, that very thing happens. God's people are in rebellion against God. They're not following God. And he raises up this Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar who defeats God's people and carries a great multitude of them off into captivity. That's where we read about Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, he's one of those young Hebrew boys that was carried off into captivity by this foreign, pagan, Babylonian king that God raised up for his purposes to bring about 
his purposes in his people. Listen to what he says in, in Jeremiah chapter 27, starting in verse 5. This is God speaking. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now that's a comprehensive statement. Whoever seems right to me, and whatever seems right to God is right, by the way. God gives, at that particular time, authority to. Now, verse 6, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, who is a pagan, God-hating idolater, the king of Babylon, my servant. <laughs> so the Nebuchadnezzar that is, that is putting Hebrew teenagers in a fiery furnace is God's servant. So whatever political candidate that we don't like in America is not as bad as this joker. And God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant, friends. Friends, this doesn't mean that we don't campaign against wicked politicians. But it means that even if they win, that God is in control. And therefore, we need to not be overly pessimistic about the outcome of any election because God is in control. Now, we may lament the temporary effects that it will have on the people around us that we love. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should be detached emotionally at all. We can lament over those things, certainly, friends. But in it all, we have an abiding confidence that God is in utter control. And look at what he says about Nebuchadnezzar then. He says, not only is Nebuchadnezzar my servant, verse 6, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Listen to verse 7. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. And we read about that in Isaiah. So here's what God says in Isaiah. He says that I'm going to raise up a king named Cyrus, who hadn't, wasn't even born at the time that God gives this word to Isaiah. And Cyrus is going to be my servant, who is the leader of the Persian Empire. And I'm going to cause Cyrus, who is a pagan idolater, I'm going to raise up Cyrus as my servant. In fact, he calls him my anointed one to come and conquer Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar won't let God's people go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. So I'm going to raise up one pagan king to smash this pagan king. And the pagan king that I raised up to smash this pagan king is going to be more gracious to my people. And he's going to allow Nehemiah and his people to go back to Jerusalem and fulfill the prophecy which I have for them about the rebuilding of the temple. So, so, friends, it's almost as if when we read the Bible that God is in complete control. Come to find out. Because he is. God's raising up one pagan to pop another pagan in the mouth to wrestle his people from the clutch of that pagan so that he can bring about his will in his people. I find that encouraging. Logan quoted it this morning off the top of his head in his prayer. 
Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This leads us then to truth number four, which I think is the converse, that we shouldn't be pessimistic or cynical about government. And the other side of that is truth number four, that we should not put our hope in earthly government. We should not put our hope in it. In one sense, I think Christians are prone to be cynical or pessimistic if an election doesn't go their way. And if one does go their way, all of a sudden now they're, they're in a sort of idolatrous way on the other side of the ditch, putting too much hope in government. This balance is often a problem for Christians in our culture because we sometimes think of the kingdom as America rather than the coming kingdom. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 146, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in Republicans, in Democrats. That's not in there, I just I threw that in there. In a son of man, in whom there is no salvation, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that day, his plans perish. Friends, this again is not to say that we don't work for the good of the government. Listen to what he says to these people that are in exile in Babylon. He says in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city, which is ruled, you're in a foreign land, and you're ruled by a pagan, unbelieving emperor, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Friends, we are exiles. That's what Peter refers to us in the New Testament. We are exiles. We are elect exiles. We are pilgrims here on this earth. We're pilgrims. But because many American Christians have had it so good for so long, we have got at home in Babylon. And we think that Babylon is actually the new Jerusalem, but it's not. The American dream is often the greatest idol that many of us have to defeat. So we shouldn't be overly cynical about government, and we should not put our hope in earthly government. And finally, this brings us to the fifth and last truth, which is we should remember our true citizenship. We should remember our true citizenship, where it lies. In order to do this, I think we need to remember the gospel. Remember what Jesus, our true sovereign, our true king, our true prime minister, our true president, our true governor, our true shepherd and overseer of our souls has done for us. Listen to what Colossians chapter 1, listen to the imagery of citizenship and kingdom standing that Paul presents the gospel to the Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness is comprised of every earthly kingdom, no matter how relatively good or bad it is politically. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, this world, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And how does He do that? Listen to me. Listen to me. This is the gospel. Our our biggest problem is not our way of life. 
It's not a tax policy. It's not a government policy. Our biggest problem is that we are by nature enemies of God and Jesus has lived a perfect life, became a man, God, fully God, became a man, fully man, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, obeyed God's law perfectly, then voluntarily laid down his perfect righteous life on the cross so that the Son bore the wrath of the Father and extinguished it. He removed the penalty. He extinguished the wrath of God, rose again in victory, now commands all people to turn and trust and believe in His sovereignty, in His rule, in His reign, and He sends His Holy Spirit to take our hearts that are by nature dead in sin to awaken them, to make them new, And he gives us the gift of faith whereby we can acknowledge his kingship in our lives and be transferred into his kingdom forever and ever. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's the whole point of the Bible. And unless we are rock solid on that, unless we remind ourselves of that, unless in the midst of our earthly citizenship we continue to fasten ourselves to that heavenly citizenship, we will have trouble with this truth. So we remember that we are part of his kingdom if we're trusting in Christ. And if you're not, friends, dear friends, dear friends, this church is not just a voting block or a a group of people that are concerned about a temporary American ethic. Friends, this church is a gathering of pardoned rebels that are made right by Christ That although we are living in this kingdom, we are citizens of a new kingdom and we're linking arms trying to help as many people not be better Americans, but to walk towards that kingdom which is coming. And that may involve, it certainly involves being better citizens, but that's not our priority. So remember what Jesus has done for us. And then we do it by looking, by looking up. Listen to the witness of Hebrews. This is is so good. Let me read a few verses in Hebrews. We're getting close to the end. Hebrews is a wonderful book, to, a wonderful letter to read through, especially in regards to this idea of where our hope ultimately lies. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, he's encouraging Christians who are being persecuted by the civil authorities, by religious authorities. He says, recall the former days, verse 32 of Hebrews 10, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, listen to this. I mean, this is not an exposition of this text. It's just something that I think is good for American Christians to read. We could talk about this later, or you could go to Logan's Thursday morning Bible study where he will explain this to you because he's teaching through Hebrews. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. <laughs> I, I'm not saying that text says all that there is to say about citizenship. I, I think it's fine to file a police report if you get your stuff stolen. But I, I just want I just want us to to take in to take in the posture of these Christians that at this particular time in redemptive history, the writer of Hebrews is seeking to encourage them and probably they didn't have nearly the rights that we had, right? They didn't have anywhere near the civil rights that we do. And he's saying, listen, it's okay. 
keep your eye on eternity. Who cares if they take your stuff because your stuff is going to, it's going to just, it's going to corrode. You have an abiding possession, a better one. Go, go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. This is speaking about Abraham and the patriarchs as they wandered through the desert looking for this, this promised land. But ultimately, they knew that this promised land wasn't an earthly piece of dirt. It was a heavenly one. So Hebrews 11, verse 9, by faith, he, meaning Abraham, went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Skip down to verse 16. But as it is they, meaning Abraham and his family and the patriarchs, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So we're marching towards that place where God is prepared for his people. And then listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. I love this. Starting in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join me in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many, listen to verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Friends, we should be wonderful citizens. We should be the best of citizens. But, as verse 19 tells us, if we make an idol out of these 80 years or our temporary political ends, if we make an idol of them, I'm not saying we shouldn't strive for them for the good of the city. Remember, we talked about that verse in Jeremiah, for the good of the city. But if we make an idol of them or we're overly pessimistic about them, then we are setting our minds on earthly things and we make our belly or our desires for comfort in this life our God, lowercase g. But our citizenship, Paul reminds us, is in heaven. And we wait for Jesus who will make us like himself. Listen to what the early church father Augustine said about this concept of citizenship. He said, For although we are called into a kingdom, into that kingdom where there will be no power of this world, nevertheless, while we are on the way there, and until we have reached that state where every principality and power will be destroyed, let us put up with our condition. For the sake of human affairs, doing nothing falsely and in this very thing, obeying God who commands us to do it rather than men. So while we're on the, we're going somewhere. And it's the kingdom that's coming. God is drawing us. He has foreknown us. He's predestined us. He's justified us. And he has past tense glorified us. So he is taking us to a place we already are. And as we're being drawn to it, while we're on the way there, as Augustine said, let us put 
up with our condition, which may mean for any of us, for some of us, that we are good citizens working for the good of our city. And by the way, let me talk about civil servants just real quickly. Thank God for the policemen and the military people we have in this church. That is a good and noble thing to do. Praise God for them. Let us put up with our condition, but let us never idolize these 80 years because we're going there. We're not staying here. Well, it's been a few weeks since I've read you a bedtime story from Uncle Chuck, so I think this morning would be a good time to listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this. In a sermon he preached, I think in 1860-something, the great London pastor Spurgeon said, Children of God, whatever you have not got, you have a God in whom you may greatly glory. Having God, you have more than all things. For all things come from Him, and if all things were blotted out, He could restore all things simply by His will. If He speaketh, He speaketh and it is done. He commandeth and it stands fast. Blessed is the man that hath the God of Jacob for his trust, and whose hope Jehovah is. In the Lord Jehovah, we have righteousness and strength. Let us trust him forever. And I love this last line. Let the times roll on. They cannot affect our God. Let's pray. Lord, take this word, I pray, and use it to make us better citizens but much more importantly, to make us better followers of Jesus. Lord, help us to not make an idol out of political parties, political power, earthly leaders. They will pass away. But Lord, use this truth from Paul in Romans to cause us to look up and see Jesus. To be so certain of our future that we are free to even be mistreated in this life so that you would use our witnesses, our lives, to point people to the next. Lord, I pray that you'd do this for the good of your people, for the salvation of anybody in this room that doesn't know Jesus, for your glory. In Jesus' name.